Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the back of her mind, I'm, I, I do feel like there would have been fear of what he could do if we did leave permanently because often he wasn't in his right mind. So... I guess you're not, you're not dealing with a rational, sane person if she's to say, I'm leaving. She's dealing with someone who's completely irrational. So I think that the times that she chose to stay, she really legitimately felt like she was doing the best thing for us. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives and what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you you What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, beautiful souls. We were having dinner with some friends this week and my partner, Andrew, was telling them how he can never find any of his stuff because it's always getting put away. 
and I know this about myself. I've always had this need to have a really ordered, tidy, clean space. It's definitely my way of keeping control of the chaos. So when the kids were little, I'd always be tidying and cleaning, always trying to keep control of my environment, of the space that I live in. And that's definitely, I'm sure, a response to chaos and trauma because taking control of the things that we can control is our way of calming our nervous system and making ourselves believe that life is just not totally out of control. And this is something that struck me when I was chatting to Mel, who is on the podcast this week. She talks about how when she was like four or five, she was super bossy and always telling all the adults what to do. Mel's mum and dad were really young when they had Mel and there was always a party and lots of people and situations going on around her and Mel's way of coping with everything was to try and control it in the only way that she could as a five-year-old girl. And I just wonder, how safe did you feel growing up? Because for Mel, life got a lot more chaotic. As time went on, her dad slowly became addicted to drugs and alcohol, and every day became just unpredictable. How was he going to behave? How would he react? how the family would get through, whether they would stay in their own beds or end up going to a hostel because things had gotten really escalated. Mel's story involves real tragedy and she's been through the most difficult of times imaginable. But she is so strong and so wise and so amazing. So please join me now in hearing Mel's story. You were born to parents who were very young at the time. What are your very first memories of life in your family? Uh, very first memories of life. I guess it was a mixture of remembering what it was like to be a child, like those childhood play moments. And then the other mixture was chaos. It just felt like chaos well, I don't even know if it felt like chaos. Looking back, I know that it was chaos. Um, I guess I was just in the middle of it, but they were young. So they would like to party and have people over. And so our house was often filled with people that I don't, I don't remember who they were, but it was just often filled with noise and music and drinking and all of that sort of thing. So I grew up, I guess, seeing that as very normal. Yeah. And did you feel like loved and safe in the environment of your family at that time? Um, I'm not sure that I did. I mean, I've been doing a lot of work around kind of discovering what my thoughts were and what thoughts I brought from those seasons into my adulthood. But I always, I was a very bossy child. <laughs> and I think that my need for control or looking back my need for control was probably a little bit of an indicator that I felt like I wasn't safe because I was trying to create some safety for myself by trying to control any situation that I could bossing people around even at four yeah interesting isn't yeah. it so tell me a bit bit more about your mum at that time what what was she like as a mum she was a doting spouse is probably what how I remember her she just doted on my dad her want was for his attention and his love and affection so a lot revolved around him I I kind of felt like I was mum's sidekick 
for a really, really long time. We, it was kind of us against the world sort of thing. I wouldn't say that it was a, it didn't necessarily feel like a mother daughter relationship, but more of a friendship. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's me and her. So did you have any brothers or sisters? My, the first sibling that was born, I was four years old. And I do remember my world caving in a little bit because I wasn't the centre of attention anymore. I kind of, you know, when my parents would get together with their friends, I was kind of this tiny little adult version of a four-year-old, five-year-old. So I would charm them and I'd kind of try to become part of the crew. However, when my brother was born, everything, all of that focus now shifted. And I guess the little bits of inclusion and community that I'd felt in my family were felt like it was being stripped away which it wasn't but that's what it felt like at the time I think that's it's weird isn't it when the next child's born very yeah. hard for the very hard for the first one I think with the attention yeah. disappearing so tell yeah. me a bit about your dad at that time what was he like as a dad he was very playful so he was a cheeky playful annoying sort of dad so his version of love was like tickle, tickling you till you couldn't breathe and, you know, farting and doing stupid stuff. <laughs> that was his version of love, which I didn't necessarily respond to very well. And I don't know if it's because perhaps I lost a little bit of my playfulness because of that need to control the environment. But yeah, so he was very playful, but I always felt like he was if someone was going to pick on me, he'd be the protector. He'd like back me up. I always felt like he was the strong protector in the family, which is so ironic because on the flip side of it, he was also someone who brought fear into our home because he was, he could be violent and very aggressive towards my mum. Yeah. And it's weird to kind of hold those things in tandem, that understanding of who he was in, you know, side by side. And I think it just, I guess, probably protected me for a long time because my little self chose to see him as that protector version and the one who would love me playfully. Yeah. But later on, it kind of made it a little bit challenging to deal with in my mind because there were these two conflicting ideas of who he was. Um, you really want him to be the playful one. You don't want that other side, do you, as a little kid? You just want to try and focus on the, the fun dad, not the the one that's violent. So tell me a bit yeah. more about that violent side of your dad. What was driving that? Well, he, he was, he used drugs and drank, well, he's an alcoholic from a very young age. And I think because my parents were kind of in the party life, that was all they, I guess that was just normal for them. That's what you did as an adult. So that kind of, I guess it, it ended up taking hold of him in ways that he wasn't able to control anymore and I think like looking back most of my the memories that had caused fear or uncertainty were surrounded in times where he was really drunk or on drugs and it it, it manifested in a way that was very very scary he, he did get to points where he was experiencing psychosis and things like that. And when he did do those things to excess, it would show in aggression. So it was this kind of weird oh, tentative waiting of when, when is he going to tip into that space, watching for the signs of, of what's coming and living with that sense of foreboding, I think. And because I was my mum's sidekick, 
eventually that that sense of sidekick kind of became almost like a parental sort of protection of her so I would yeah I'd be trying to kind of help her or let her know when something's happening or when you know I see something happening yeah so it it was very strange dynamic that was created um, because of the alcohol and the drugs and I think like any any environment that has an abusive sort of relationship in it, it's that big, huge roller coaster of, well, I see, I see the good parts. And then it kind of takes a nosedive and, you know, he, he goes into the abyss of alcohol and becomes this aggressive monster again, who is terrifying. Yeah. So I think it's a lot for a young person to understand, to have to watch that roller coaster and also watch my mum's response to it as well. And what was her response? Well, because there was violence attached to it, it was a very, it, it was scary for her to cross into challenging him in any way. And, you know, when he wasn't, when he would come off drugs or alcohol, there'd be the awful detox, which has its own manifestations of, you know, um, anger in itself. So there was really no good time because he was, and I don't think, I actually don't believe that he was capable of finding resolution in himself because he had a lot of work to do internally to actually get to a point where he could believe in himself enough that he could do it. You know, the cycle of addiction comes from a place of shame. So I'm not sure that he had it within him, but my mum's response, I guess I could see her trying to manage the situation before it unfolded. And when it did get out of hand and maybe he crossed a line um, that we would leave and we would, we would often go to women's refuges and stay there or go to a motel for a couple of weeks if we, she'd managed to get the finances together for that, but it never lasted long. And I remember um, as a young girl, probably eight or nine, asking her not to go back because I knew Like I, even as a young girl, I could see that it's just going to go back. It's just going to go back. It's just going to be the same way that it's always been. And it might be good for a couple of weeks. So there was like that honeymoon period where we'd get back from leaving him and he would be so wonderful for a couple of weeks. And I think that would be the injection of love and security that she needed to be convinced that he would change, but he was an addict. So there was no changing unless he chose a different pathway. So yeah, it was a very vicious cycle and it was, I think, especially as I grew older, really, really painful to watch her continue in that cycle over and over again and to be caught up in it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so do you think that all of this addiction for your dad came from his own experiences growing up? I can't really speak so much to his experiences growing up. I know that my grandparents were... Well, my grandma in particular was very loving and very close to her children. And my dad's dad was, he worked all the time. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not quite sure to the depth of of his experiences, but I saw, and especially now as an adult looking back, I can see how low his self-esteem and self-worth was. Just in the way that he behaved, like sometimes you know, he's, he would jokingly put us down as children, but I actually know in my heart of hearts that he loved me. And I know that he, he had pride for who I was. So I know, I know now that that wasn't about me. It was about him. 
So I guess it's just looking back, being able to see those signs of, okay, something wasn't really working for him. But as a kid, you don't know that. You just think that it's all because you've done something. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So you, you sort of feel like these memories start almost from your first memories and come all the way through. So by the time you're 12, you've lived an entire life already of, of living with a drug addicted parent. So say around the age of 12, what is life like at that time? What are your feelings about and how do you cope with your days? Mm. Well, I guess starting high school, it kind of began to, I found a tribe outside of my family tribe and I really connected with a few girls at school quite deeply. They felt like sisters to me, which was such a gift. I'm, I'm really, I really do look at that and see the blessing that it was to have those women or young women by my side. And so I guess it, it gave me a little bit of hope and maybe a bit of reprieve as well, that there was connection outside of that. And I guess, yeah, to be able to process life or just do teams type things, not have to be, not have to be holding it all together. And I think that was really the, the contrast between the two realms is that at home, I really felt like I had to, I had to pick up the pieces and be the adult and be the, my mum's support. And, you know, then, internally watching the watching the scene making sure that i'm doing everything i need to do to not rock the boat so school and friends became really um, a place of refuge because at school i could just be myself with my friends to some extent because i was a teenager so <laughs> there's that but also i felt like but i was quite academic so at school i felt like this is something I can do well and I can control it and know the outcome. Whereas at home, I could try to do things well and perhaps they won't be seen to be done well or I could try to do things well and the outcome still wouldn't generate what I'd hoped it would. So there was an element of certainty, I guess, that came with that age. Yeah. And so when you're at home, I guess you're just feeling out of control most of the time is that the feeling yeah it was and i guess out of control and controlled as in i felt like outside sources were controlling me which when i say that i'm talking about my mum and dad because you know i would have to change my behavior according to my dad's moods for instance and definitely at that age i took a lot of responsibility for helping keeping the house going and you know coming home from school and cleaning and getting the vegetables ready and all sorts of things and also played second mum to my siblings as well. So it, it's a weird mixture of being controlled and wanting to exert control <laughs> to create some certainty in that, in that environment. Yeah. So were your parents going off to work and living a normal-ish sort of life? Is that what was happening at that time? Pretty much. My dad had his own business so, and my mum worked in that business. So they would often go to work together. Yeah, which meant that I would come home, you know, with my brother to an empty house and keep, keep things going for when they got back home. So yeah, they, they worked in the business and then often my mum would come home, my dad would stay at the pub and then kind of things rolled out from there kind of predictably. Did your mum ever talk about leaving the situation or was she really dedicated to staying in that situation? 
Um, I think it was a mixture of dedication and fear that kept her there because my dad, it wasn't just alcohol, it was drugs. And then the drugs had the effect of creating scenarios that didn't exist. He would often get really paranoid and believe the worst about my mom. And in the back of her mind, I'm, I, I do feel like there would have been fear of what he could do if we did leave permanently, because often he wasn't in his right mind. So I guess you're not, you're not dealing with a rational, sane person if she's to say, I'm leaving. She's dealing with someone who's completely irrational. So I think that the times that she chose to stay, she really legitimately felt like she was doing the best thing for us, which is kind of hard for me to fathom, but I really do believe that she was doing what she thought was right. And actually both of them were just doing the best with the resources that they were given and what they learnt and they didn't know any better. So if you don't know any better, you're not able to actually do anything differently. Absolutely. Mm. Your dad went to jail for a short while, didn't he? Yeah. Tell, tell me about that because I know you visited him in jail. Yeah, yeah. So it's nothing glamorous and I still to this day can't believe that he went to jail for this. <laughs> but he started driving without a licence when he was a teenager. So he never was one to stick to the rules for anything. He lived outside of the boundaries all of the time. So he was kind of, he was done very early for driving without a license. And then 20 years down the track, he still kept driving without a license, even when he was suspended. And he did it so often and so frequently that they had, he basically went to court for it and got jail time. So he was in jail for six months, which was, it was a weird, it was so strange later on as an adult looking back going, oh my gosh, I visited my dad in jail. <laughs> at one point we like visited him at Pentridge, which is the big jail in the city, quite famous in Melbourne. But yeah, to go through the process of, you know, being scanned and emptying your pockets. And it's just so strange to me looking, looking back that that was quite normal for us. Yeah. And, and so was that an opportunity for him, do you think, to kind of get clean or did he just come out and start afresh with the drugs? Yeah, unfortunately he kept sliding back. And I mean, I don't even, he was in, so he, well, he was in Pentridge for a little while, which was higher security, but then he went to a country based jail, which had a lot more leniency. And I think it probably would have been very easy to get his hands on something there. So I don't actually know if he was clean in that time. And he was a very charismatic man. So he would draw people to himself all of the time. So I think anything he needed access to, he would have been able to get it because he was just that type of guy. Everyone just loved him. He was, a, he on the outside looked like a big softy. And when he was not deep in it, he was a big softy. Yeah, so unfortunately it didn't really provide the opportunity. Maybe I'm sure my mum had hoped that that was what would have happened, but it didn't really end up that way. But, you know, weirdly enough, the time that he was away created a little bit of a reprieve from the chaos that we'd experienced on a daily basis as well. Yes. Just a relief mm. from all of that. Just, yeah. just not having that unknown every single day, I suppose, what, what's going to happen today. Yeah, that undercurrent that's always like being read all of the time didn't need to be there. Yeah. yeah. So 
When you were 15, there was a, a tragic accident, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, when I was 15 years old, we were actually, my mum and I and the kids were staying away from my dad at this time. And we, but we had caught up with him during the evening at the pub. And in the morning, my mum got a phone call that there was an ambulance at the place that he had stayed. And I just remember just a huge rush of adrenaline um, that happened at that time. I could see that she was so, so panicked. And I foolishly got in the car with her and went to where my dad was. Um, it was really scary, like driving the roads, trying to get there because she was, she just wanted to get there. Um, and when we arrived, we discovered that he had passed away and my nonna, my, his, his mum was there. It was just, it was such a surreal scene. It kind of felt like I was having an out of body experience watching it happen, like on a TV which is probably, you know, my brain protecting itself a little bit. Yeah, just watching all of that unfold and the surreal nature of it. Like I just remember seeing him lying in the middle of the front yard and just walking down the street, the street screaming. Like it was just so, it was so strange. Yeah, it was a really, there were a lot of mixed emotions going on. Um, my mum... I mean, understandably was not able to comfort me at that time because she was in shock herself. So I think that whole, the whole unfolding of that day just have so, has so many, like let alone the trauma of seeing my dad dead, um, just so many smaller traumas within that, like, you know, seeking solace with my mum and her not being able to just touch anyone because it would, you know, make it real. Um, so as a 15 year old in that moment, I, I felt so alone and so frightened. Um, yeah. So we later found out that he had died of a drug overdose and he'd been sleeping in the car out the front. So the person's house who it was had no idea for quite a while. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so how did that affect you over the next you know, year or two, how did you cope with that grief? Um, oh gosh, it was really, I would say it was probably the most challenging time of my life, even though I had experienced so many other challenging moments leading to that point, because my mum really, really, really struggled. And so, I mean, 15 is the year, which I've, I mean, I've seen it with my own children. 15 is the year that is the hardest one to manage. It's, it seems to be all of these internal shifts happening as you begin to become an adult. But I kind of, I guess somehow had to balance and juggle this need to be there, be present for my siblings in their grief and kind of try to keep things going because my mum kind of fell apart a little bit. And she did take me to a counsellor or a psychologist and... I was so, I mean, I was a surly 15 year old, but I, she tried to get me to draw something. And I just remember feeling so condescended to because, you know, yes, I was 15. Yes. I was still technically a child, 
but I hadn't lived the life of a normal child. And I had taken responsibilities that no child should ever have to take. So to be asked to draw something, I just felt so demeaned and undervalued really, like you don't really see me. And unfortunately, because of that experience, I didn't want to go back, which was, it was, it was really unfortunate because I had a lot of processing to do. And I kind of had to, to come to terms with this weird grief because I was grieving my dad. Um, and I guess grieving the possibility of what we could have been as a family, but also I was relieved and that was really hard to grapple with as a 15 year old. Yeah. Because you know, that one event, even though it created other turmoil and other chaos, yeah, there was this sense of, okay, I'm safe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so, that's so many conflicting emotions, isn't there? Yeah. You just, you, you're mourning for your dad and you're mourning for who, who you could have been together. Because yeah. I think if, when you grow up in a family where you're not connecting, you're always thinking about, you know, you, and you watch that stuff on TV and those perfect families and, mm. and you're like, oh, I wish I had that. You know, you're always dreaming of what that would be. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're grieving that you never got to have that and, and yet feeling this relief. It's so many emotions, isn't it? What do you end up doing? Do you just bury those emotions to cope? Is that what you end up doing? Yeah. Um, I think the, there was probably elements of my controlling nature that came out where I, I guess being able to be the one to step in and make sure that the kids had what they needed or, you know, just directing life gave me a sense of purpose and focus. It gave me something to focus on. And at that time I, I had church friends that I would be leaning on as well. They, again, they were kind of my refuge people, but it was around that time that I probably began to turn to food myself as a way to, I guess I felt like, Food became comfort to me for a little while. So, yeah, it was kind of a mixed bag of I'll try anything at this point to kind of dull what I'm feeling or be able to get through or keep moving forward. But what I am grateful for is that I was so frightened by who I saw my dad become when he drank, when he took drugs, that that was never an option. It was never an option. It was never on the table for me which I'm so grateful for. I'm so grateful for that I didn't go down that path. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, that's really hard. So your dad passed away when you were 15 and then you actually got married when you were 19. So that wasn't too long after really, was it? No, no. Yeah. So tell me yeah. about tell me about meeting your partner and how that all came about in amongst yeah. the grief that you're dealing with. Yeah, so we had met shortly before my dad had died and we'd only really just started connecting. But I just, I can't, I can't even express what a gift he was to me in that season because he, and he still is this sort of man who is just a constant, steady, gentle, loving man who, who is just always there for me. So, and he was exactly that then. He was just always there when I needed him to be there. And we grew up very, very differently. So 
I really applaud his ability to stick around with the mess that I was. <laughs> yeah, we grew up very differently. He kind of grew up in the church. So our lives were just so, so far apart from each other. But yeah, he was very patient with me as I kind of, I guess, slowly and surely, it was a very slow process of beginning to step out of grief and begin to find healing, I guess. Um, it did take a while though, a few years before I was ready to do that. But I think his presence was a part of me feeling like relationships could be different. Marriage could be different. Equality between people and, res and mutual respect could actually exist between people. So he really gave me hope about relationships and what that could look like. Oh, I love that. That's amazing, mm. isn't it? He sounds yeah. like he, he is such a gift. And just to see how that all works for other people, because sometimes it's just all we know is one way and we don't even realise there's another way sometimes. So how amazing yeah. that he came into your life. I mean, that was just so wonderful. I just love yeah. that. So then you had your first child at 21. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So were you looking forward to being a mum at 21? Yeah. So I actually thought that I would have children young. So I didn't, I didn't plan to go to uni or anything like that because I'd always expected that I would be a mum and I'd had practice, I guess, because I had four younger siblings that I had been looking after for a really long time and played that second mum too. And I was, I guess, even just as a friend, very nurturing. And anyway, I thought that I was well set up to be a mum. So yeah, I had my first daughter when I was 21 and all of those things that I thought about myself went out the window as soon as I had a child. And it was really, really, it was actually a really confronting time. I wasn't prepared for how unprepared I was. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 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 So what, in what way were you unprepared? I think I assumed that all of the nurturing and all of the, I guess, the feelings attached to motherhood would be there instantly. But I think for me, what actually happened is that having a child, I guess, held up a mirror to my life. And I realized there was just a lot of internal stuff that was stirred up in me when I realized everything that my childhood didn't have. So it was really confronting in that way about what I like, what I lacked as a child, but also the gravity of being a parent and not really having a great model of knowing what normal looks like. And I mean, everyone's normal is different, but coming from dysfunction, I knew it wasn't that. <laughs> yeah. um, so having to kind of figure out what does this look like and not feeling it come as naturally as I'd hoped that it would or predicted that it would. And it was, yeah, I, I had times where she would be in her cot and she was a very poor sleeper, which really exacerbated everything. But she'd be in her cot and I would just be scream crying just like wanting her so desperately to go to sleep and knowing in my heart something's wrong, but not actually putting a finger on something could be wrong. Yeah. Just going, I guess I internalized it. I think what I did was say to myself, I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. 
there's something wrong with how I mother, there's something wrong with how I parent, why isn't this working for me, all of those sorts of things. And it wasn't until eight months down the track that I was diagnosed with postnatal depression. So quite a long way in, which is, I kind of look back on that time and really grieve for it. I wish that if someone had seen some of that happening earlier, that I could have got help earlier and maybe being able to pick up the gifts of that that time can hold a lot sooner. There were gifts in there, absolutely. But I think with anything in life, for some reason, our brains tend to hold on to the negative emotions associated to it. So when I look back over her first year of life, a lot of it is those things that I wish that I'd done differently, which, yeah, it's just, it was, there's a lot of grief over that time. When you have postnatal depression, what are you feeling? Is it like a distance from your child? What are the feelings that are different? Yeah, I think that I did feel like there was a lack of bonding. It's so strange because it's almost like you exist in, like I existed in two different worlds. There was the, like the knowledge part of myself that I'm like, I love this child. I love her so much. And then the other part of myself that exists somewhere else that is like, something's broken. And yeah, there felt like there was a lack of bonding and perhaps exacerbated because she was quite a difficult baby as well. You know, there was some reflux and colic and all sorts of things that really made life a lot harder to deal with when all of my internal junk would surface at the same time. So to be dealing with those two paradigms at the same time, I think made it really hard to see through the fog. And fog is probably a really good word for how it felt to have postnatal depression. Like there was a filter over everything, kind of sucking the joy from even the simplest things. And unfortunately, that also manifested in anger for me as well um, and irritability. So, I mean, every mother, I think, gets irritable with a new baby. Um, But it kind of would, you know, with those little minor irritations would just set me off and I'd become angry. And then because I'd become angry, I would become shameful and guilty about my anger. And it was just this awful, vicious cycle that was really hard to get away from. So I think the fog and not feeling like I can really absorb the joys, the small little joys of, of having a, a, new, a new baby. Yeah. And how long did that last for? Um, well, I, became, I began medication once I was diagnosed and I was on medication for a couple of years or maybe 12 months, and then went off medication when we decided to fall pregnant with our second child. And so I guess there wasn't, I mean, I was seeing it, I was seeing a psychologist at the time and doing all the right things and not just taking medication, but trying to kind of navigate this new period of motherhood and what it was that was actually going on inside me to um, generate these feelings. But it became a little bit more hopeful when I began medication because I do believe that in order to become free of our past and our experiences, there's a lot of internal work that needs to be done, Um, a lot of thought work, a lot of conversation to help unlock those unhelpful, hurtful beliefs that we carry as children. So I kind of began to do that. But the medication gave me the opportunity to be able to do that work in a way that wouldn't undo me. I think if I tried to do that work earlier without that external support, I'm not sure that I would have been able to face it. So it was, I guess, this perfect storm of opportunity 
to be able to work through the stuff that I needed to to live better than I had been. Do you know why depression comes out when you have your own child? Is it just all the suppressed stuff that you've pushed down and then you have a child of your own, it just sort of brings all of those emotions back out. Is that what happens? Yeah, well, any, any major life experience can cause past trauma to surface. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might even be getting married or it might be losing someone else that surfaces the trauma of a past loss. But it doesn't even necessarily need to be big trauma. Like, um, I'm not sure if you've heard people refer to trauma as big, tra- big T trauma and small T trauma in that as kids, you know, we grow up and we have our own little perception of the world. We have our own eyes that we see the world with. And if our personality is bent in a different way than our parents' personality, we might be needing something to be filled in us that our parent doesn't know how to fill. So even if it's something simple, our little brain can distort it and then we kind of adopt this unhelpful belief that we then carry into adulthood. So when we experience something like having a baby, it, it surfaces all of that stuff that perhaps we haven't even thought to look at. And unfortunately, often we don't know that that's what's happening, that the trauma of our past and what we've experienced is coming up in those big seasons. Um, yeah, which can be more than just having a, a baby. Mm. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Uh, so how long did you have your depression? Did it go on for a long time? Yeah, it did go on for a long time. So when I had my second daughter, even though I'd weaned off the medication, I was doing okay before I had her. It wasn't very long into after she was born that I recognised the symptoms. Fortunately, I recognised it much, much sooner. And I'm so grateful for that because I was able to connect in with my GP and and my counsellor again and get the support that I needed to, I guess, live a little bit more normally function a bit better than I was the first time as well. So I guess for about 10 years, I was on and off medication. And it took a lot of work, I guess. If I, if I hadn't have really lent into those support networks and connected in with my spirituality in a new way as well, then I don't think I would have come out the other side. I probably would still be on medication. But I think I feel that my story can give people hope that there is a way out eventually. And I think it's the despondency of feeling like, oh, I'm going to be on medication forever that sometimes even like exacerbates that feeling of depression and the lowness. But there was a point when, when I maybe, I think I kept on going on and off because I'm like, I don't want to be on medication. So probably on and off, maybe three to four times. I remember the last time sitting in, in the GP's office, just bawling my eyes out going, I can't believe that I'm here again. I can't believe that I need to be on medication again. But I do remember getting to a point of thinking to myself, all right, well, if I have to do this forever, then I have to do it forever. Because what what that gave me was the ability to be myself. So I kind of just thought, well, oh, well, if I'm on this forever, then I'm on it forever. And funnily enough, that was actually the beginning of my healing to get to a place where I didn't need medication anymore. It was kind of that, I guess, an act of surrender to go, if this is it, this is it, that's fine. But committing to do the work to see a psychologist to make sure that I'm kind of doing all that internal work to kind of shift my mindset and my belief patterns. But yeah, I think that surrender was ultimately my way to freedom. 
So with the postnatal depression, what would you say were the main couple of signs for somebody that this is something that they're struggling with and they might not realise? Yeah, I think it is different for everyone. But for me, there was a real lack of joy in the simple things with my children that I just couldn't engage with with the the funny, exciting, playful moments as as easily as I'd, I'd like to. And I would still go through through the motions because that's what my kids needed, but I didn't necessarily feel them to the depth of my soul. So yeah, there was a lack of, of connection with my my own emotions. And yeah, just that that sense of fog. Like it was like a black fog that kind of just felt like it permeated everything that I did. And kind of, it just felt like it brought a sense of despondency and hopelessness. So I think the feeling of lack of joy and the feeling of hopelessness probably is the thing that pervades a lot of people's experience. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about how your mum, how is she going in her life now? She is, well, her family is everything. So we're all partnered and a couple of us have children. So yeah, she kind of just spends her life going between each of our houses, supporting each of our families. And I think it's beautiful to kind of see her place so much value in making her children happy and just being really present for them. And yeah, I think she's found a lot of freedom and joy and sense of purpose in that as well. Yeah. It sounds like she was very lucky to have you there supporting her in all those years. And now she's also able to support you as well, because just you must have a a pretty strong bond with your mum. Yeah, we do. We've kind of, I guess as I've done, I've had to do a lot of healing over, you know, as an adult, knowing some of the things that I really needed as a kid that I didn't have. There's been a lot of healing that's needed to take place and it's been a long journey, but such a worthy journey. And I'm able to kind of sit back and appreciate how she's grown and developed as well. And what I really um, value about my mum is that she's always looked over the role that I played in our family and been really appreciative that I was there and was a support to her. And I think really I, I kind of, as a, even though I was a kid, filled a space of companionship for her. And I think she really needed that. And I guess there's a simplicity in a mother-daughter relationship that comes, regardless of how dysfunctional it is, at the heart of it you know, you belong to each other in those early days anyway. Absolutely. So apart from therapy, what, what other things have helped you heal over time? Yeah. Um, Well, I'm of a Christian faith. So my faith has played a huge role in really being able to find forgiveness and let, let some of the pain of the past go. I found a lot of healing in that space. And it's also helped me to frame who I want to become as well as a, as a parent, because a lot of the time, a lot of my struggles have come from, well, what does this look like to be a healthy parent? I don't know what it looks like. And because, you know, I mentioned before about being bossy that showed up as a perfectionist with perfectionistic tendencies. So as a mum, I would often set the bar really high and my faith has shown me that there is grace. There's, there's opportunity to make mistakes. It is okay to try something and fail at it. It's okay to come back and apologize. 
all of those sorts of things have come from that space of faith. So I think it's probably the mother wound, even more than the father wound that has needed healing in me. And my faith has been a huge part in me finding that healing because of those things. And also my husband, I think just knowing that there are incredible men who are willing to stand by their women, to hold space, to listen, to converse, to be supportive. That has been monumental, such a big part of my healing. I really don't think I could have done it without him. He's been incredible. It sounds like you've been lucky to have found each other. Yeah, um, definitely. Are there any books that you've read that have been super helpful for your healing and learning? Yes. There are. So there's a book called Boundaries. That Boundaries book was a pivotal moment in my relationship with my mum when actually I began to take steps to become an adult. I was, how old was I? Late 20s, very late 20s when I read this book. But I think there was some codependency happening in our relationship. And that, that book really unlocked my understanding of what it means to have boundaries, that it's okay to have boundaries, that it's okay to verbalize them, and even what to expect when you do put those things in place and, you know, how other people might respond to you. My boundaries were very low. I didn't have many in terms of other people and, you know, if they asked things of me. So, yeah, that was an incredible book that really was the catalyst for huge change in my life. Sounds awesome. I might have to get a copy of that one myself. <laughs> what do you think, you've? because you've got two teenage kids now, what do you think has been the most important things that you've brought to their life that perhaps you didn't have? Mm, I think my willingness to keep getting better. I screwed up royally in the beginning. I made so many mistakes and I still make mistakes, but I think just continually going, or oh, how could I... How could I have done better there? And what is it that I want to communicate to my children about what a healthy parent looks like? What is it that they need? So I think leading with love, even though they probably wouldn't agree that the things that I ask them to do or expect of them are always loving. (laughs) It is, my motivation is always love and their best and how their character will be affected by the choices that I make. So I think just choosing to always try to get better and trying so hard to have grace for myself when I don't. Yeah. I love that. That's so awesome. I love all of that. So now you're a coach and counselor at Manor and Hive. Mm -hmm. So tell us a, a bit about what you're doing for people there. So I guess because I've had my own seasons of feeling like I'm so stuck with this thing, like it might be a pattern of thinking or of a pattern of behavior or, knowing where I want to go, but not knowing how to get there because I know that experience. I so value the work that I do with Manor and Hive as a coach and a counsellor because basically, you know, we kind of just look at, well, what are the things that are keeping you stuck? And that might be just current circumstances or it could be our story and some of the beliefs we've picked up along the way because of the way we've lived. So kind of teasing that out, but then I guess the coaching part of it comes in in a very different way than counselling counseling we kind of just talk about what you've experienced why you feel like you might have experienced that or behave in a certain way and coaching takes that knowledge and then begins to build on it towards okay well what do you want and what do you want your future to look like what would it look like to be a healthy parent do you think that's helpful way to think or 
Is that not so resourceful to think that way? So kind of dissecting things a little bit to figure out, okay, well, what is worth moving forward with and what do you need to learn to let go of? So really you're able to design what you want for the future to look like and then begin to kind of plot a pathway towards it. And obviously it's not going to be a bed of roses. Life is hard. We get curveballs and all sorts of things. But I I think what I really love about this process is that it restores people's faith in themselves and what they're capable of. So it really shows, experience this all the time, talking to people and hearing their story and recognising the incredible characteristics of that person to be able to get through that. Sometimes all it takes is being able to have a conversation in the coaching space or the counselling space to be able to, to pull out the gold in those moments and go, hey, how incredible are you? You have all of these resources that you need to be able to move towards the future that you want to. And I just love the momentum of it that it doesn't need to be a place of stuckness there is possibility and there's hope and there are opportunities to be able to move forward and you know coming from the life that I've lived that's so precious (laughs) it's such a precious thing to be able to guide people through because I know what it feels like to feel stuck in that space I love that because there is so much gold in people and sometimes we just can't see it ourselves can we so where can we find you on Instagram or do you have a website so uh, my website is manaandhive.com and my handle is on there it's manna.and.hive on Instagram as well so yeah I'm always more than happy for people to kind of shoot me dms or emails and touch base to let me know what they're experiencing and how they might like to create change for their lives. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'll put those links anyway in the show notes so people can find you easily. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. It's a tough life that you've been through and it's so good to see that you've come through and everything that you you're doing now it's so inspirational and yeah I'm really grateful that you shared it with us today so thank you so much oh you're so welcome thank you for allowing me to I know that it's an absolute privilege to be able to come and have this conversation and hopefully share a little bit of hope that you know people don't need to be stuck in their story forever and there's possibility Thank you so much for being here. Please check the show notes for all the links related to this podcast, including book recommendations. If you have a story to share, questions about this episode, or want to connect in any way, I would love to chat. Please come and find me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Can you think of one person whose life might change a tiny bit in a positive way by hearing this episode? Please go ahead and share it with someone you know needs to hear it. These stories are so important. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.